While working on Porgy and Bess, Gershwin stated, The production will be a serious attempt to put into operatic form a purely American theme. If I am successful, it will resemble a combination of the drama and romance of Carmen with the beauty of Meistersinger. Stay tuned to find out more about the aspects of jazz in Porky and Bess on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Join us for a spectacular event honoring three magnificent artists. Janet Baker, Cecilia Bartley, and Lawrence Brownlee will be celebrated at the virtual presentation of the 2021 Opera News Awards on Sunday, April 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our three honorees will be saluted with appearances by Stephanie Blythe, Joyce DiDonato, Renee Fleming, Thomas Hampson, and Ramon Vargas, and with special musical performances by Aaron Morley and Luca Pizzaroni. Tickets start at $50 and are available for purchase at www.metgill.org awards or by phone at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Featuring jazz rhythms, blues, banjos, and African-American spirituals, Gershwin's Porgy and Bess challenged pre-existing notions of what an American opera could be. Although Porgy and Bess has a complicated history, Gershwin's innovative music has had a lasting impact on opera. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we present part two of our series, Jazz and Opera. Lecturer Deidre Bird will explore how jazz played a role in making Porgy and Bess such a successful work. In case you missed part one, our earlier program featured a discussion of the origins of jazz music from the perspective of its West African roots and American germination. Jazz's big break came with the United States' 1917 entry into World War I. The aftermath of the war induced a simultaneous aesthetic rupture with both provincial American traditions, such as ragtime and minstrelsy, and with any ostensibly European imports, actual or accused. By 1918, even the hugely popular late 19th century English-language operettas of Gilbert and Sullivan were seen as foreign, un-American, and frankly, pretentious. I will tell you what I am. I'm a genuine philanthropist or other kinds of sham. It's a little fault of temper and it's social defect. In my erring fellow creatures, I endeavor to correct. To all their little weaknesses, I open people's eyes. And little plans to snub the self-sufficient I devise. I love my fellow creatures. I do all the good I can. Yet everybody says I'm such a disagreeable man. And I can't think why. 
Aided by the course of jazz development, American performance art was eventually epitomized in George Gershwin's 1935 opera Porgy and Bess, an American stage production by the sons of Ukrainian Jewish immigrants, the descendant of South Carolina planters, and a cast of African-American artists charged with breathing life into this musically and socially challenging synthesis of American art. Like so many success stories, jazz, though yet unnamed, was in the right place at the right time. Post-war America was in the midst of a cultural identity crisis, and this new-sounding, rhythmically confounding American dance music was the answer to every question asked, from music to art to attitude. Most importantly, the end of the war was the real beginning of the commercial record industry. Like America, jazz's uniqueness and value grew out of its diversity, but its success hinged on its ability to transcend those differences. For a country yearning towards a unilateral separation from European influence, only an authentic indigenous art could act as a panacea, and jazz was it. Yet along with jazz's deep ties to the American South's diverse vernacular heritage, there is no escaping that the lion's share of the jazz tradition is grossly indebted to the performance practice, musical notation, and instruments of European classical music. Jazz histories often shy away from thorough discussion of classical music's influence in favor of a purely American creation narrative. There are one of two reasons for this, both inimical to the pursuit of intellectual inquiry. One, a conscious denial of the European ancestry of jazz with the specific intent of grandstanding its Americanness, or two, the failure to recognize the sights and sounds of European classical music as distinctive components of jazz in the first place. The latter revisits a discussion topic from the first half of this talk regarding the effects of Western European music's global hegemony on our ways of hearing. If we as listeners or performers remain pure-blind to the origins of our languages, whatever form they take, we limit not only our capacity of perception, but also our access to the means of creation. The Cradle of Life insofar as the origin of jazz is concerned, was the southern city of New Orleans, Louisiana. The state of Louisiana has a history unlike any other in the nation. New Orleans was founded by the French in 1719 at the poor end of the Mississippi River Delta, ceded to Spain in 1764 for 36 years, and then, as a result of some bullying by Napoleon, returned to France in 1800. Finally, Napoleon sold the territory off to the United States as part of the famous Louisiana Purchase of 1803. Despite its role as America's largest slave market under French, Spanish, and American ownership, antebellum New Orleans had the largest educated and prosperous community of free American persons of color in the 19th century. The accepted integration amidst select sections of the populace and the city's strong Latin Catholic background as opposed to the bulk of America's Christian Protestant affiliations, had a pronounced effect on everything from language to music-making. With the end of the Civil War in 1865 came the end of slavery, which added to New Orleans' already diverse mixture of free blacks, Creoles, whites, and a huge influx of European immigrants. 
Another result of the war's end was an inordinate amount of leftover Confederate band instruments. The city already had a rich military band tradition stemming from the French, but this influx of unused horns provided access to instruments that many poor musicians could never dream of owning. A testament to the region's powers of musical synthesis, the New Orleans brass band treatment of traditional hymns, such as When the Saints Come Marching In and Just a Closer Walk with Thee, are much better recognized by Americans at large than the originals on which they're based. As jazz historian Burton Peretti makes note, medium tempo and slow blues were pretty much the same in river towns all across the southern United States. But European-soaked New Orleans' marginally integrated population and democratized availability to musical instruments spurred a variety of instrumentalized blues music unique to the locale. By 1900, Louisiana's river region was rife with black instrumental ensembles, from Kid Ory's Creole Orchestra to Buddy Bolden and Charlie Galloway's band, James Humphrey's Onward Band of New Orleans, and myriad others. Let's listen to what is widely regarded to be the first purely instrumental black jazz record ever produced. Composed and performed by trombonist Kid Ory, a New Orleans native who only spoke French up until his teens, Ory's Creole trombone was recorded at the Sunshine Records studio in L.A. in 1922. Thank you. 
alongside the development of the various forms of indigenous music in the Delta River Basin, New Orleans was also the center of North America's burgeoning classical music scene. The first opera was performed in 1796 at the Théâtre Saint-Pierre, and by the time Louisiana was part of America, the instrumental music of Czech, French, Spanish, Portuguese, German, and Italian composers was part of the city's standard repertoire. According to James M. Trotter, the mixed-race son of a Mississippi planter and author of the 1878 book Music and Some Highly Musical People, the first U.S. music history study ever published, foreign and domestic visitors to New Orleans were surprised to find African Americans in regular attendance at theaters and music halls. Even walking through the streets, passerbys would commonly hear black laborers singing arias from French and Italian opera. As early as 1840, the city featured an amateur African-American musical association called the Philharmonic Society that boasted over 100 members. And, as Trotter notes, the organization encouraged liberal-minded native and foreign gentlemen of the other race to come and play with them and many did. The city was known as the opera capital of North America, and its semi-integrated French opera house was the center of New Orleans social life from 1859 until 1919, when it was destroyed by a fire. The city's strong French heritage placed a primacy on formal musical training as a marker of status, and as a result, New Orleans produced a never-ending series of world-class Creole, Black, and mixed-race classical musicians. New Orleans' enormous amount of musical activity, classical and otherwise, was also reflected by its robust publishing industry. By the latter half of the 19th century, there were several printing houses in operation that published everything from piano transcriptions of popular Mexican brass bands to the latest Verdi libretto. Given New Orleans' universal obsession with classical music, it's no wonder the genre had such a profound impact on the development of some of jazz's main corollaries. As W.C. Handy, the famed Alabaman cornetist, composer, and self-titled Father of the Blues, recounted in an interview, when he was traveling with his band in 1896, any musicians he picked up in New Orleans were scholarly and played the classics. In spite of the Big Easy's comparably lax history of segregation, African-American musicians still faced the challenges created by slavery and enforced by racial bias. Only the elite of any race were afforded music lessons and targeted instrumental training, and many performers had to make do with whatever instrument they could lay their hands on, combined with whatever knowledge of music they could scrape together from their environment. One of New Orleans' most famous jazz men was the pianist, band leader, and composer Jelly Roll Morton. A quintessential product of his hometown, Creole-born Morton toured the American South working in minstrel shows in the early 20th century before relocating to Chicago, just before the First World War. Along with the European, Latin, and Caribbean influences of his childhood, those early tours exposed the young pianist to the Mississippi River Delta's diverse blues heritage. Once in Chicago, Morton began to write and arrange his compositions. This was a huge step in jazz history because the early jazz and blues traditions featured in his music were rooted in improvisation. 
According to the second edition of the Harvard Dictionary of Music, improvisation is the art of performing music spontaneously, without the aid of manuscript, sketches, or memory. Morton and subsequent jazz composers didn't do away with improvisation, insomuch as they marked out sanctioned detours in their ensemble compositions for improvisation to take place. A good example of this musical road mapping is Jelly Roll Morton's 1926 hit, Black Bottom Stomp, performed here with his band, the Red Hot Peppers. That definition of improvisation we discussed just a few minutes ago was actually only the first half of the entry. 
After defining the technique as performing music spontaneously and without the aid of manuscripts, etc., the definition continues. This is true at least of the great days of improvisation when masters such as Bach, Handel, Mozart, and Beethoven were as famous for their improvising as for their written compositions. This dictionary edition is from the late 1960s, but it's interesting that the definition highlights Bach and Beethoven as the prime examples of improvisation, rather than famous jazz musicians like Charlie Parker or Miles Davis that we associate with improvisation today. It isn't entirely because the editor himself was German, though that may have something to do with it, but because for the 300 years leading up to the 20th century, improvisation was central to the art of European music making. Similarly to the West African tradition of layered improvised melodic lines, melodic improvisation has always existed in European music. In fact, improv has been a topic of written discourse since the 9th century in early treaties on polyphony. From the Renaissance music of the 15th century up through the 1800s, various forms of improvisation were standard components of Western European classical music. In a bid to outdo one another, composers renowned for their improvisatory prowess, such as Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven, actually participated in competitions with other pianists. In 1920s New Orleans, this kind of challenge was known as a cutting contest, they were competitive musical fights that also encouraged a workshop environment wherein performers could try out new ideas and hone their improv skills. During the Baroque era, instrumental improvisation was most frequently employed as accompaniment known as basso continuo, wherein a composer provides the rhythm section and or keyboards with a chordal outline called figured bass, similar to a jazz lead sheet, as a guide. Moving into the 1700s, composers began to feature improvisational interludes as a central element in what would become the concerto, a sort of mixture between a symphony and a featured instrumental solo or set of instruments. Sitting at the height of emotional tension, usually towards the end of the first or third movement of a concerto, the cadenza, generally speaking, is an improvised ornamental passage played or sung by a soloist for the purpose of showing off. Originally a form of vocal music, the instrumental concerto wasn't popularized until the classical era when composers started experimenting with transcribing singers' arias. A cadenza isn't just a carte blanche license for the performer to play whatever they want. A well-constructed cadenza, aside from showcasing the performer's extemporaneous talents, should quote or make allusions to the preceding material in as engaging, illuminating, and insightful a manner as possible all while remaining within the jurisprudence of good taste. It's as hard as it sounds, and not many performers are too keen to offer up their own cadenzas against the written ones of Herr Mozart or Beethoven. Alongside the likes of his predecessor Mozart, Ludwig van Beethoven was another composer-performer giant who regularly performed as the soloist in his own works. Accepting the final piano concerto, Beethoven left all the cadenzas unwritten at the time of their premieres. Years later, he either decided that writing out the solos would better serve posterity, or perhaps he began to notate in order to combat his encroaching deafness and waning performance capabilities. Beethoven wrote his Piano Concerto No. 1 in C major in 1795 and had it published in 1801. 
It's called number one because it was the first concerto he published, but it was actually his third attempt at the genre. You would recognize one of his previous efforts as piano concerto number two in B-flat major. Concerto number one features a prominent cadenza space towards the end of the first movement, for which Beethoven wrote three different versions. The performer can choose whichever Beethoven-authored cadenza they wish, but they are also completely at liberty to use one of their own. The following clip features an entirely original recording of a sample cadenza for Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 1, improvised specifically for this Met Opera Guild podcast and performed by the acclaimed American concert pianist and jazz musician Matt Herskowitz. In accordance with the sanctioned precepts of a successful cadenza that we discussed earlier, Mr. Herskowitz's entirely impromptu creation draws not only on the Beethoven concerto of which it is part, but the overarching musical themes of this very podcast. What do you recognize? As we mentioned in part one of this podcast, the concept of rhythm is the defining characteristic of jazz. You can play a rhythm straight or you can swing it. 
Swing is not the easiest concept to unpack on paper because it's better understood as a feeling versus a formula. It has to do with the displacement of the beat, an evolutionary feature of the rhythmic practices that evolved out of the overlay of jazz's combined West African and European heritage. When it comes to jazz music, which is written using standard European musical notation, there aren't any regular indications as to how the beat is supposed to be emphasized. Swing is hereditary. It's something performers learn to feel which they can then apply to the music without overthinking it. We do the same thing every time we use the English language. All two syllable or more words have strong and weak beats. If the first one is emphasized, like garden, it's called trochaic. If the second part is stressed, like belief, it's called iambic. You wouldn't say garden or belief because it doesn't feel natural. Well, that's how swing works. You play what feels natural, and with swing rhythms, what feels natural is patterned on the movements of dance. Believe it or not, musicians have been swinging the beat way before jazz. The earliest print account of rhythmic alteration, or rhythmic inequality, was published in Geneva in 1550. And, like jazz, this sense of rhythm took its shape from regional vernacular music and dance. Also, like jazz, the custom of this Baroque swing was to pair notes by lengthening the first beyond its written value and shortening the second, long-short. This practice came to be known as inégal, French for unequal. Not later than the 18th century, note inégal had become so common in French performance style that a composer needed to provide special instructions if it weren't to apply. As over 30 writings on the subject attest, Inequality was as basic to French musical practice as counting rhythms and reading pitches. Courtly dance was much more formalized in 18th century Europe. And so the music, even with its inequalities, was required to be as well. Fast forward to the 20th century, those rules were falling away. The freer the dancing, the freer the music, and jazz's capacity for freedom was unlimited. Ah, Tatum, man with a piano. Gershwin, man who wrote many a great song. Man meets song, I got rhythm.
20th century America was sliding into an economic depression which culminated in the Panic of 1907, otherwise known as the Knickerbocker Crisis, wherein the stock market tumbled 50% from the previous year. Entry into World War I, though very unpopular, took the U.S. out of a recession and into a four-year boom, and America from a debtor to a lender nation. With the start of the war, immigration from Europe was severely curtailed, creating a labor shortage in the North that would require new manpower. The open job market spawned what was later termed as the Great Migration, the beginning of a mass movement of black Southerners to the North and West. British jazz trumpeter and writer John Chilton traced the lives of 427 Southern black jazz musicians born before 1915 and found that all told, six out of seven of them had permanently migrated North in the decades preceding World War II. The radical shift in U.S. foreign policy which bolstered a stance of isolationism that would last until the Second World War, turned the United States in on itself. Anti-European sentiments, coupled with the heavy emotional toll of the war, left Americans itching for something new, something commercial, something you could dance to, and that's where jazz came in. African-American bands had begun to use the word jazz in their names starting in the 1910s, but the notion of jazz music as a distinct and novel genre didn't take hold until the post-war era, and when it did, it was a nationwide phenomenon. It was jazz's capacity for freedom, freedom from the confines of traditional melodic and rhythmic interpretation, that made it so popular and incendiary. The question on the minds of parents and prudes was, if the music has been so corrupted as to transcend traditional form, what's to stop it from corrupting the people who play and listen to it? Jazz was the music of bars and nightclubs whose cultural leadership was helmed by African-American musicians. This threat of the unknown did little to stymie jazz's popularity, and the frenzied pearl clutching only added to its cachet. By the 1930s, jazz had changed the face of the United States. There is perhaps no better example of this in pre-war America than the 1935 opera Porgy and Bess. Porgy and Bess is not a jazz opera. Its composer, George Gershwin, called it a folk opera, but even that title doesn't fit. Gershwin's work, like jazz, defies classification and invites controversy. It's the product of many conflicting parts, yet the final assembly yields art of the highest order. A native New Yorker, Gershwin was an atypical musical genius. Late to the music game, the composer didn't start playing an instrument until he was ten. In 1913, at the age of 15, Gershwin found work as a song demonstrator with a publishing firm in Tin Pan Alley, the infamous collection of NYC music publishers and songwriters who dominated popular music in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Primed by the years of modern music exposure in Tin Pan Alley, the young composer began writing an unstoppable series of hit songs that ended up in commissions for Broadway musicals. By the 1930s, Gershwin was a household name.
Already a master of stage performance, Gershwin, like Scott Joplin before him, wanted to create a formalized musical concept on the grandest of scales, an American opera. Just like the operas of Europe, he needed a narrative that was unique to the folk heritage of the United States, something that specifically exemplified the social and artistic legacy of Americans. Gershwin found his story in the 1925 novella Porgy, a short book written by DuBose Hayward, a wealthy white author from South Carolina, that tells the story of a crippled street beggar and the lives of the other residents at Catfish Row, a black tenement district in 1920s Charleston. Perhaps for Gershwin, who grew up in a series of cramped tenement housing in New York City's Yiddish theater district, the insularity of Catfish Row's communal structure, language, artistic expression, and belief systems, as independent yet equal in significance to the neighboring white communities, was a reflection of their shared Americanness. This universality of spirit, as captured by Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, is the operatic manifestation of the same ineffable artistic qualities that constitute jazz. Since its 1935 premiere, the Gershwin estate only allows for stagings of Porgy and Bess that feature black artists in the roles of any African-American characters. In the 1930s, this kind of social sensitivity was exceedingly rare, and, although the narrative and the music were brokered by a white descendant of plantation owners and the sons of immigrant Jews, the stipulation of an all-black cast attempts to preserve the African-American community's contributions to the creation of this opera that society systematically robbed them of making. It's perhaps fitting that Porgy and Bess is not a jazz opera. It is at one time the musical product of the American jazz evolution, though structurally it remains firmly within the sanctioned European classical confines of opera, an anomaly befitting of the idea of Americanness. And what jazz contributed to the genetics of Porgy and Bess, Gershwin's opera returned to jazz as perhaps the single most influential source of jazz hits in the American songbook.
time. Morning time, and evening time, and summer time, and winter time. This got you, man. That was lecturer Deidre Bird discussing the influence of jazz on Porgy and Bess. If you'd like to learn more about opera, make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on all your favorite social media platforms. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.